we all need dignity, we all need justice, we all need fairness, and and we're stronger if we're fighting together. So I think that's a little bit of the case I'm making more of an inside case to the community is, you know, we have to keep joining forces with others because then also it starts to break down some of those conflicts that I think some people think we actually do care more about immigrants than we care about other communities. And that's that's not the case, I really don't think. It might come across that way, but I think sometimes people think that when you silo your struggle and somehow it gets cast as you're up against someone else's struggle. Welcome to Everywhere Radio. That was today's guest, Wendy Feliz. Everywhere Radio is a production of the Rural Assembly, and I'm your host, Whitney Kimball Coe. Each episode, I spotlight the good, scrappy, and joyful ways rural people and their allies are building a more inclusive nation. Wendy is director of the Center for Inclusion and Belonging at the American Immigration Council in Washington, D.C. Well, I'm really excited to have you here today um, on Everywhere Radio to um, introduce you to our constituency of rural leaders and advocates and to learn more about what you do on a day-to-day basis and and what you're thinking about these days when it comes to uh, inclusion and belonging. And I wanted to start off by asking you, um, how did you come to be with the Center for Inclusion and Belonging? I think you're the founder, is that true? Yeah, that's right. I I am. Well, I started, well, first of all, I'm very happy to be here and I'm very excited to be connected to you, Whitney. You're one of my favorite new colleagues and I keep telling everybody about you. Um, So it's really nice nice. to get to talk to you some more. Um, Well, I've been with the American Immigration Council since 2008 and um, I moved to work, moved over there right in the very first days of the first Obama administration because we had all thought we were about to get this big immigration bill. And it was a really kind of an exciting time. Um, and we never got that big immigration bill passed. And, um, and then what followed were just many years of struggle to get good policies passed to support immigrants. But then, you know, it was also just um, a, an ongoing struggle on the issue. And then I think in the election, period, you know, that ended in 2016, it was just really disheartening to see the issue used, you know, weaponized and used as a way to turn communities against each other. And so I turned my attention um, to thinking a little more deeply and a little more broadly about what was going on in, in America, what were people's mindsets on immigration, why weren't people as strongly with us as we had thought or we had believed from all the public polling. And so that just took me on a, a long journey, which which um, came, that's where the Center for Inclusion and Belonging came because we needed to have, you know, we're a traditional law and policy shop. You know, we file lawsuits against the government to make sure they're, you know, adjudicating immigration benefits fairly. Um, we run really typical policy and research analysis, but we really needed um, an angle to the organization that could really think about narratives and attitudes and how people were thinking about this issue and, and how could we start to, to work on um, chipping away at public attitudes on immigration so that we can get ourselves and our country to a place where people will support um, you know, welcoming policies in, in communities around the country. So and I'm wondering about just this idea of inclusion, where, what does inclusion mean and, and what does it look like to you um, from your vantage point from the center? Words get, um, 
you know, become loaded, you know, once seemed like an innocent word because a loaded yes. word. And I think, you know, we, and we've had a lot of experience with that within the immigrant rights community. I mean, words that we used to use very freely, like integration, um, people don't love those words. And inclusion is also kind of tricky too, because what it, what it kind of, I think means to a lot of people is that one dominant group sets the rules and every group who comes after has to somehow fit themselves into those rules. And so I think, you know, our new way of thinking, and it is a word, but I think it is a mindset, is belonging. Because belonging means we write the rules together. We create the environment together. And if we do it together, then we'll all feel totally comfortable because we wrote the rules together. Um, and so I think that's that's what I do think about is like, how do we help people understand and make a move towards belonging so we can create spaces where everyone feels comfortable, no matter what our background is. Um, and we don't have to give up any part of ourselves to fit in or to be kind of part of the of the dominant groups um, vision of what, you know, what our groups should should be like. And how do you bring all this to bear on the immigration conversation um, and moving these uh, policies forward or, or on ga in gathering people together. One of the criticisms I'll make of, of, of the traditional immigrant rights movement, you know, in the current form it is and, and that it's been built into in the last decade or so is we really fight alone. And um, it, it's, it's easy to do that. It's easy to silo yourself, particularly when you feel under attack. And so you kind of wrap your arms around a community and you go forth and you fight together. But I think in doing that, we, in a sense, we've done ourselves a disservice because we've gotten disconnected from other communities that need justice too, and that need better treatment and that need fairness. And we've siloed ourselves to working on certain issues um, but every single public policy issue in this country will impact immigrants, just like it'll impact the US born. Anybody who lives in this country is impacted by policy. And so I think one of the things is we have to get a little more communal. I know people like to use the word intersectional, but we just have to like join forces, right? We all need dignity, we all need justice, we all need fairness, and, and we're stronger if we're fighting together. So I think. That's a little bit of the case I'm making more of an inside case to the community is, you know, we have to keep joining forces with others because then also it starts to break down some of those conflicts that I think some people think we actually do care more about immigrants than we care about other communities. And that's, that's not the case. I really don't think it might come across that way, but I think sometimes people think that when you silo your struggle and somehow it gets cast as you're up against someone else's struggle. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's that's one of the ways I that's one of the ways I've been thinking about it. Um, I mean, that resonates with me from just a rural perspective. I think rural gets siloed in a lot of ways, but then also we we tend to silo ourselves um, in in the pursuit of uh, achieving um, parity and equity. Um, and I think part of what the rural assembly is thinking a lot about these days is how are we. Uh, how are we joining forces and creating those partnerships? And it's one of the ways you and I um, came into contact was just this desire to, uh, to broaden our, our allyship and our partnership. So I wonder if there are any examples that come to mind of, um, of, of what those collaborations look like, like what, what does cross um, sector work in your space look like? It looks like a lot of things, but a couple things come to mind. We actually, um, 
when we started thinking about how to change the narrative or how to build a, a broader table of support for good policies around immigration, the first thing we set out to do was figure out who don't we have, who isn't with us, or who's ambivalent on these issues, or who's concerned, or who's checked out. And, and we did learn that a lot of the people that are checked out of the issue because it feels um, heated and political and like a lot of fighting um, tend to be, you know, middle class to lower middle class working people who um, live in the middle part of the country and live in the South and certainly live in rural communities. Like they don't feel engaged in the conversation and they don't want to engage because it's so like, it can be really toxic and mean spirited. And so as we started to learn who those folks were, we said, how do we re-engage people? But not necessarily through a political lens, but how do we engage people like in a community lens and in a neighborhood lens? Like, how do we begin to allow people to kind of reconnect in that way? So they do want to start solving their problems together. Um, and so we've been piloting different strategies around the country with, with our partners on this campaign that we just launched in December called Belonging Begins With Us. And it has two pieces to it. It has a media component, um, which is like basically ads that, that were put together by the Ad Council that talk about belonging. And then, it, and then the ground game component of it, we're working with partners like the YMCA, the Council on Christian Colleges and Universities, the Trust for Public Land, and there's others, and we wanna keep building that out. But what we're asking them to do is help people come together to solve their common problems in community um, make sure there's immigrants in the mix and make sure there's people who aren't immigrants in the mix so that when they start solving those common community problems together, they start understanding there is a shared destiny. There is a mutuality. You're not my enemy. You're not my competition for a job. You're not my competition for a space in a school. You're my neighbor. And I think if, you know, both groups were showing a willingness to, to solve common problems, we start to chip away at some of those um, divisions across groups. So we're kind of piloting and figuring out a lot of that stuff and you know, really specifically thinking about rule. We were doing some work in Knoll, Missouri and it's, it's, it's shocking in a way like how much change can happen in these communities and no one thinks to shepherd or support that change. You know? And what happens in a lot of rural communities is like a meatpacking plant will set up shop there. And, and then a whole bunch of newcomers, whether they're refugees or immigrants, just people from other countries show up and they have different language. They might have a different religion. They might have a different hue to their skin and everybody's just left to figure it out. And, you know, it's kind of almost like an irresponsible thing that the US government just does, but that's what we've done for 200 years. We throw a bunch of people together and say, figure it out. Figure it out. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So it's also really thinking about how do you help communities create um, a, um, a sense of belonging for everybody where it doesn't feel like anybody's taken over anybody else's space, but that you're building it together so you can all live well together. So you can all take care of your families, take care of your kids, earn a living, right? Because that's all any of us is really trying to do. Um, but we're gonna need a lot of partners and a lot of friends to, to be able to achieve this. But going back to the earlier point, What's good for rural is good for immigrants because immigrants live in rural communities. Um, and so that's, that's back on the immigrant rights community is to, we have to care about what's happening with every other community because it's gonna directly impact the group we're advocating for. So it's chicken and egg, you know, mm -hmm. like we can't silo ourselves from other issues happening in the country. 
We'll be right back after this from The Daily Yonder. Hi, I'm Caroline with The Daily Yonder. We publish a number of weekly newsletters from our editors and contributors so you can get the latest in rural news right in your inbox. To subscribe and to get all of our coverage, visit us at dailyyonder.com. Well, I know you are, I mean, you're a founder of this um, this organization. You're a professor at Georgetown University. Is that true? And and you're, I mean, you're a facilitator and a speaker in, in all uh, kinds of forums. Well, where are you from? Who, um, what state or in, in region and um, what's home for you? Um, well, I was born and raised in a fairly small town called Monterey Park, which is right in the middle of Los Angeles County, um, which is sort of between, it's right next door to East LA and it's about six miles away from Pasadena, which most people know from the Rose Parade. So, you know, it's weird. I did grow up in California in Los Angeles, which seems like a big city, but really it's just a series of small towns. Um, and uh, my mother grew up there. My grandmother grew up there. My father's from East LA. So he grew up in East LA. And um, so we're definitely longtime Californians. But um, wh- what's, you know, what's interesting is that town changed a lot. In the 1980s, it became a sister city to Taiwan. And many Taiwanese people moved in and it became, um, it changed like in a very short matter of time. In fact, my parents eventually sold their house and left like lots of people did because they felt pushed out in a way. And so it's really interesting because we often think of immigrant integration as like, how do we welcome immigrants in? But it is true, a lot of US born folks feel pushed out sometimes when immigrants move into their community. So if it's not handled well, and some group is feeling like they're being pushed out by the other, that creates resentment, right? And you don't want yeah. that. And so it, it, it's, you know, I'd just been reflecting on that lately because I had never been thinking about how people are feeling pushed out, but they do, you know, and that happened in Old Missouri. It's happened in a lot of meatpacking towns where people with means will leave because they'll say, oh, we lost our town. And you don't want anybody to feel pushed out. We don't want anybody to feel pushed out. So I think that's something we have to reckon with too. When I think about the this concept of being pushed out, um, I'm also I also think about the concept of uh, pulling in and recognizing. I mean, particularly in rural places, recognizing that demographic shifts are happening all around us, and it's in many ways can be a very positive thing in terms of uh, prosperity and growth and population increases. And uh, for rural places, that can be really important. Um, I just wonder if you have reflections about that, not just the pushing out, but the the calling in. Yeah, no, I mean, it, there's two, it's just like everything in life, right? There's two sides to every coin. And, you know, certainly communities welcome business. They welcome growth. They want, um, they want to thrive, you know? And we did some work in Crete, Nebraska, and I compare that to a place like Fremont, Fremont Nebraska. They're two fairly small towns, but um, they had very different experiences when demographic change came. You know, one, Crete really embraced it. Um, there was a Smithfield uh, pork processing plant that moved in. People really embraced it. And they've really worked with great intentionality to, to make a, create a welcoming place, you know, where everybody feels included. And they have even a town motto that's like, in Crete, welcoming is in the water. Um, and they also say they're a community in motion, right? Like they, they like the idea because when you stack that up, there's a lot of towns that seem to be in decline, right? You've got a main street with broken windows or stores not occupied. 
And so a lot of rural towns are trying to figure out how to, you know, maintain that strength, create businesses and keep moving forward. And that's important. But the other side of that coin is some people who are not used to these kinds of changes need, um, need a bridge, you know, they need support, they need to be able to get through that, they need to realize their neighbors are still their neighbors, they just might um, be a little different than they used to be. So I think it's important, obviously, but I think, you know, we have to, there has to be that, you know, it's like the soft skills embedded in that, you know, so if the Chamber of Commerce wants to invite new business in a new industry and mayors and leadership do, I think that's great, but you need a plan for, you know, helping the community adjust through those changes. And maybe some people will never adjust, you know, that's just reality. But I think a lot of people, given the opportunity, will connect with their new neighbors. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah. You know, over some of those barriers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, just to go back to policy for a moment, uh, you said you joined um, the American Immigration Council uh, when you were expecting um, new big policy to come through. How are you feeling um, about what's coming down the pike with this new administration in terms of immigration policy? Well, I feel I'm always optimistic. I'm eternally optimistic. Otherwise, yeah. I wouldn't work on immigration. <laughs> very eternally optimistic. Look, I think I think Joe Biden is a very interesting politician, and I think there's a lot of differences between him and Obama. Um, I think he is a institutionalist. I think he's someone that actually cares very deep about government and the Senate and restoring people's faith in government. And so, I think he's. Um, and he also cares deeply about his party. And I think he's going to want to position his party well um, to continue to do well and win voters from Rust Belt areas and um, from some of the places where Democrats haven't always been able to build a coalition, at least in the last 30 years. So I'm optimistic, but I think the question is, will he really put his own political capital behind immigration reform? Um, or will he say, I've introduced the bill, now it's on you guys to get it passed, right? Because ultimately Congress needs to pass the bill. And I, want, I, I kind of believe, and I don't think he's wrong, he's gonna spend some of his real serious political capital on things like rebuilding American infrastructure, um, solving COVID, uh, bringing our economy back. And look, if he does all of those things, guess what? Immigrants will benefit. And so I, I think that's terrific. And I want everybody in America to do well. I mean, I'm an immigration advocate, but I'm a patriot and I care about every person in this country. And so to me, I think, you know, probably a lot of people wouldn't agree with me in my community, but I think we can't push to go before things that would benefit Americans who are really, really hurting right now, because I think in a way that hurts us and it makes us look a little bit self-centered when there's so much suffering going on in this country. But um, the other good thing is, you know, the Biden administration is rolling back the worst stuff. You know, they ended, the, they ended the Muslim ban and they're working right. on some of the most egregious stuff. They're working on family reunification for people who are separated at the border from their children. You know, they're gonna fix the gravest harms. They've reopened the refugee program and, you know, went from a 17,000 cap, I think to 115,000. So, I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're doing immediate things that he can do within his authority. Uh, but ultimately, comprehensive immigration reform comes up to Congress, so up, it's up to them to pass it. So mm-hmm. we'll, see. we'll see. This is um, this is new wisdom, actually, for me. Something I hadn't honestly thought so deeply about, which is, you know, that um, if we're able to invest in recovery and infrastructure and those sorts of projects that all 
people benefit um, to some extent from those things. Uh, and going first is, uh, it, can, it can be fraught for, um, for all kinds of reasons. I also wanted to ask you, what is what gets you up in the morning? What makes you um, full of energy uh, for, and full of passion for the day in oh, general? Zoom calls. What Zoom else? calls. <laughs> yes. Um, of course. It kind of is what gets me up. It's like, oh God, I have a Zoom call starting at night. Um, <laughs> wow. It's been a year, right? It's been a year. If you asked me that question a year ago, as opposed to today, it would be different. Um, oh God. You know what gets me out of bed every day? For Christmas, my boyfriend bought me an espresso machine. I didn't even know what this was. And oh my God, it is so good. Like my boring French press where I used to make my coffee has got nothing on this Nespresso machine. So I'm, I go to bed at night excited to wake up in the morning to have my Nespresso. So that's a really big one. That resonates with me too. Uh, my, the thing I look forward to most in the morning is my bowl of Cheerios. So <laughs> there's just something about the breakfast time, morning breakfast time. And mornings are good. They're a good time for me. It's when I like to write. It's when I like to figure out the harder things because then the rest of the day you're on these Zoom calls, right? Um, yeah. I love my walks. In most days, if it's not too cold, I go for a walk and I have like a forest behind my place. So I do tree bathing and I love going back there. I love walking. Um, I won't lie. I also look forward to my evening cocktail. That, that mm. makes me happy. Oh, that's not get out of bed in the morning. Okay, sorry. I'm digressing really fast. <laughs> I'm with you on that one too. Look forward to that that evening cocktail um, and and the walks. That's real clutch right now during COVID. Um, what are you reading? Anything that's very good or that's feeding your soul? Absolutely. Well, you know, it's I'm a weird lady. I read a lot of nonfiction. That's kind of I, don't, I think I've always been just trying to figure out the world my whole life, and I just thought fiction wouldn't get me there. Um, so I've been reading uh, The Upswing by Robert Putnam. And he's the guy that wrote that book 20 years ago about bowling alone. Yeah, bowling alone. Yeah. But his new book is really interesting. And he talks a lot about how we're in this normal, um, for, you know, 100 year sort of phase where he says you go from living in an I to a we to an I world and you just keep going through that cycle. And he kind of argues we're coming out of I, which kind of started. So the, so the ultimate we period was like the 60s, right? We're passing all that good legislation and people were fighting for justice. And it was this really good period. We Last time we got good comprehensive immigration reform was really in the 60s. And then we went into this very I period where people got kind of self-centered. And he argues we're moving back into a we-centered space. But that requires groups like yours, Whitney and mine to say, we've got to come back together. We got to fix our problems together. We can't fight. We can't be divided. And so it's hopeful that he thinks we're moving naturally back into that phase, but he does say like things have changed and you've got to adapt accordingly. People um, get together in ways that they didn't, you know, and they convene differently and they associate differently and there's different kinds of technology. So the question is for people like all of us is like, you know, how do we lead something forward, but how do we do it together? Um, so it's great. I love this book. It mm -hmm. makes me really happy. And it makes me think about how you do this kind of organizing in the new world. Um, and then Richard Blanco, he, I do read poetry sometimes and Richard Blanco's, um, how to love a country 
is all about this bridging work and it's beautiful. And so I, I recommend that book too. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you yeah. for both of those recommendations. And they both seem to align with a lot of your thinking um, these days too, which is really cool. Uh, um, what did you think of Amanda Gorman's uh, poem on during the inauguration? Like, I felt like she needs to be part of our coalition. Yeah, let's let's invite her to our coalition. <laughs> and I thought it was like having her and then having Joe Biden give his speech about unity, which I understand John Meacham, the historian, had a huge hand in. It just, it, it's just, it's, it sucks to have to defend national unity, but because we're stuck in such a zero sum mindset in this country, we really believe we can only have either justice or unity and that mm -hmm. we for some reason have to choose one over the other. And I just don't think that's true. I mean, I think that's what we really need right now. I think we need role models. We've had some bad parenting, if you will, for the last four years. And we need some good role models out there reminding us how we're supposed to treat each other, how we're supposed to look forward to a future together where we can all live together um, with dignity, with justice, but also with unity. Um, so I loved that day. That day was very, that filled my soul up. Um, mm. And I really do have a lot of faith, you know, in, in, in the power of the presidency. And I actually think Joe probably really is a man for the moment in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm looking forward. I know it won't be perfect. I know I'll get mad. I know I'll get disappointed. But um, I think, you know, he's going to demonstrate some real leadership to the country at a minimum. And, and I really, really hope he can restore some level of bipartisanship. I really mm -hmm. hope we can respectfully re-engage with the Republicans or those Republicans who are willing. And I know a lot of people have given up on that idea, but I don't know how we survive as a country if, if we can't get back to communicating with our political opponents. It just, it won't work. <laughs> We're not designed to work without it. Yeah, yeah. Um... I agree with you wholeheartedly about the role models and you are um, a new role model for me. So thank you for coming into um, this, my world and into uh, everywhere radio. It's been really fun to talk to you. So wonderful. Appreciate Thanks. it. I feel the same Whitney. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank our media partner, the daily yonder next time on everywhere radio, Krista Tippett, from the On Being Project. A realization I had a long time ago, in the last century, in fact, <laughs> was that the conversations I wanted to be hearing weren't out there or they weren't taken seriously. You can be anywhere, we'll be everywhere. Thanks for listening. 